Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as the atrocities in Ukraine continue and the global horror continues, many Ukraine refugees are returning home to Kyiv region. What's it like to help civilians in a war zone? Well, Matthew Best, a freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail, is in Ukraine. He joins us to talk about that. Less than two weeks after Elon Musk criticized Twitter for lack of freedom of speech, he's now bought a big piece of the company. What's going on here? We'll discuss that. And why is new music facing a decline in streaming while the older performers are surging in popularity? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An international Red Cross team has shelled hopes of entering the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol after being held overnight by police in a town about 20 kilometers to the west. Alanya Sudyenko is uh, with the Red Cross, and uh, she says the situation there is dire. The situation in Mariupol has been dire. People have been staying there for a week with absolutely no humanitarian supplies getting in. And our staff members have now been trying for four days to organize the safe passage for those people who want to leave the city, to be able to do that safely, and for those who want to, to bring some essential for supplies for those who want to stay. That's that's only one area. Uh, Kiev, of course, uh, is... is a situation that I guess we never even imagine in our wildest imagination, uh, some of the atrocities that have been uncovered in the last couple of days, uh, now that the Russians seem to have pulled back and Ukraine is moving back in, especially Ukraine soldiers are moving back into that area. Uh, Matthew Best is over there. He's a freelance journalist with the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen. He's in Lviv, uh, where they have their own set of problems and concerns. Uh, Matthew, first and foremost, thanks for joining us. I hope you've uh, been safe over the last little while. It's uh, it, It's terrifying to hear some of the stories coming out of Ukraine now. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, currently in Krakow today uh, in Poland. I'm escorting a young woman over here who's had some some of her own problems from folks, uh, uh, American contractors going into Lviv, and uh, we're trying to help her out because uh, unfortunately the horrors Can we of start war... there? I, I know you gave us a little bit of a background on this, and it, it's a uh, the horrors of war I, I, under that umbrella i guess we could call this story you know when situations like this happen and we know that there are a lot of people that have moved to ukraine uh, as you say contractors uh, some of them uh, just you know are paid fighters and uh, you don't necessarily do character analysis of these people and there's some uh, terrible things are happening including this uh, this person that you're with right now tell us tell us about her story well, I'm going to call her Lviv Doe for now. Uh, so okay. Doe um, reached out to me over some networks I'm on uh, where we coordinate uh, in Ukraine. These are some of the same networks that helped me out uh, in Afghanistan and some of the reporting there. I got a call last, oh, I'm going to say last Thursday morning at around 7 in the morning, telling me, 7 in the morning local time, telling me that a young woman was in distress. She was being threatened by some bad guys. And there was a few calls of went ahead and i found out she was about 500 meters from my hotel so i said i'm gonna go pick her up right now i went out and i met doe uh who was staying with a friend in lviv uh at a hotel uh, she didn't feel safe there uh some people knew where that was uh, some people who'd kept her for several days um and i went picked her up stashed her at my hotel and we made an exit plan for her reached out to some folks running humanitarian corridors uh, out of there and they got a few few uh, young Jewish volunteers, actually, who were uh, who were able to get us out the very next morning, spent 24 hours with her laying low at my hotel as a safe house. And uh, we just did a crash evac the next morning, took about two hours to get across the border here to Poland. And uh, we were able to get her safely out from there. But it's been a it's been a long, long sort of process from from going across the border to here in Krakow and getting her the help she needs to get home. Now, the authorities were aware of this, are they, are, were they not? Because my understanding is that they, they're looking for this individual that uh, is alleged, I guess we have to say that word, uh, to have actually carried out this assault. They are aware of the individual. Uh, we, you know, reached out through the same networks. The folks still in Ukraine, uh, you know, stand-up guys who are Marines, soldiers, uh, folks who served, folks who are still serving uh, in some capacity or another, uh, you know, reached out to the Ministry of Defense over there and the... Uh, Ukrainian National Police let them know. A uh, very brave girl. I know a lot of young women in her situation, uh, you know, don't really like to go to the police, but she was determined that this guy would never do this to another woman again. So she went and cooperated with the Polish police as well. And uh, right now she's also, uh, you know, talking to the American authorities to figure out 
who best can handle uh, her situation. They know the name of this individual. I mean, she was she she was aware of who this guy was uh, in, in the situation. Uh, police, uh, as you mentioned, of both countries have a name. Can you track something like that, Matthew? I mean, you mentioned he's over there. He's a, a contractor, basically. But do, do they know who he was working for, why he was over there in the first place, and, and more importantly, where he might be now? We do know who he was working for. Uh, we were able to run background on him very quickly. I reached out to some of my folks uh, within the first few hours, and we ran down his name almost immediately. She took some great notes uh, when she was feeling scared. Uh, she just felt like she had to you know, get down what she could. We ran that down really quick, found out who he was working for, who his affiliates were, who he met, you know, and only know for a few hours, who we'd known for longer. The problem is, you know, tracking somebody like this. This is a, a war-torn country, you know, and there's a lot of security going on, but they don't, you know, check every car at a checkpoint. They do at the border, but if you got some folks that know how to smuggle you, there's some, you know, cracks you can slip through. And you can track the guy. That's not a big deal, but how fast you can track him down and where he can go might change things around we've got folks looking everywhere for him and you know a lot of the stuff that that she's been able to share with me that i can't really you know put out there right now on the radio and talk about you know they know it as well so they know what this guy's up to and and what his games were so he he's gonna be found as you mentioned i mean you've covered war zones for a long long time now uh you've seen the the the, the good the bad and the ugly of what happens in situations like this and, and i I get the impression that some people just think that, you know, if there's a war going on, in, in whether it was Afghanistan or now in Ukraine, uh, they think there are no rules, that it's lawless, I can do what I want, when I want, to whom I want, uh, and there's, there are no authorities over here. And, uh, and they take full advantage of situations like this. They do. It's carte blanche uh, to play cowboy. It's carte blanche to uh, live out their fantasies of, of being a hero. And let's face it, like, you know, people who do stuff like this to to anybody not just a young woman but to anybody they're the guys who uh you know use those fantasies as crutches that they're going to be the hero that it it uh it washes clean their sins and it doesn't and this a situation like this attracts those people like unfortunately like like flies to garbage and you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said you know it's a it's a thing with war zones it's this notion that there's a center of chaos that you can just gravitate to it pulls in the helpers, women, you know, like her who wanted to come over and be a medical volunteer, but it also pulls in the parasites, the people who see it as a, as a chance to live out their, their worst, worst power fantasies. It's a disgusting situation, and, and I'm hoping the authorities are successful in, in tracking this guy down uh, and bringing him to justice. But as I say, not the first time you've seen atrocities like this uh, on innocent victims, and, and it's happened way too often in, in circumstances like this. Talk to us a little bit about what you've heard uh, from your sources over there about what's going on in, in some of these cities. I mean, the story, of course, that was uh, all over the place uh, this past weekend was, uh, you know, that since the Russians pulled out of Kiev, uh, and, you know, the citizens, some of them, and some of the, of course, the Ukrainian soldiers have returned to that community now, the larger community. Uh, and, and basically, I mean, the, the, well, you saw President Biden yesterday uh, suggesting that, you know, that, that Putin has to be charged with war crimes, that the atrocities uh, that the Russians uh, have done to ordinary citizens. And you saw those stories, you know, finding bodies with hands tied behind their back and bullets in their head. You know, you wonder what in God's name is going through their heads as, as they're, they're doing these sorts of things. Well, you know, I told you just a second ago, this place, uh, a place that's a, a war zone, that's a, a chaos. It attracts the worst people like flies to garbage. And this is what we're seeing very large. This young woman's story is just one of, you know, many stories, unfortunately, American on American. But these stories have been happening for, you know, for weeks, for, for over a month now in Ukraine that are Russian on Ukrainian. Um, it's a, it's what I'm dealing with today is a microcosm of what the people of Ukraine are, are dealing with constantly. We are seeing those stories coming out. Uh, the, I, you mentioned some of the people with hands tied behind their backs, and we've seen folks with swastikas uh, carved or drawn on their bodies. Uh, the images that are coming out are, are absolutely horrifying. And um, the, the good folks that are over here, the helpers that I mentioned, it's there's a threshold that it's reached where enough is enough. Um it's it's a sentiment what, with what Biden said, you know, being charged with war crimes uh, against Putin. It's a sense that it has to happen. Um, people are getting the sense of, you know, when 
when are they going to finally coup their leader? When are they finally going to get rid of this guy? When is this finally going to be over? And there's going to be some accountability. Um, because unfortunately, accountability is one thing that in a war zone is always lacking. So, But the, the mindset, and I was talking with a, a, a military expert yesterday on the program, basically, and he was amazed at the fact that, for instance, we don't know who's in charge. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a military leader who's leading the Russian uh, effort here. We don't even know exactly what their goal is here, uh, although there's probably an argument to be made right now that it's, it's about ethnic cleansing. That's what they seem to be wanting to do uh, by going after citizens and not necessarily military targets in situations like this. In, in all the, the, the zones that you've been, Matthew, and the, the, some of the horrors that you've seen, have you seen anything at all like this where it just seems to be random attacks at people as opposed to a, a, a military goal that they're trying to achieve? Well, very early on, uh, we saw, you know, attacks against citizens. Uh, we've seen that since day one. We've seen all seen, you know, horrible images of uh, people trying to escape in cars and those cars being shot by armored vehicles. We've seen, uh, I think, very famously, a, a video taken from a Ukrainian drone of a man getting out of a, a vehicle and being shot dead when he had his hands up. The goal for this has always been um, ethnic cleansing. The goal has always been some form of genocide. We know that the definition of genocide is a lot broader than most people think. When, when most people think of genocide, they imagine the Holocaust and the wholesale extermination of, of people. But the displacement of people, the destruction of their cultural identity, all fall under the auspices of genocide as well. And that's been what's been going on since day one. What we see now is a more direct effort to you know, see that goal through. It's if, we'll, if we couldn't displace them and, you know, erase Ukrainian culture in the Donbass region, then, you know, we're just going to start killing them. I'm not surprised it's evolved to this. I, I don't even know if you could fairly call this an evolution or just a natural extension. But those stories are coming out now, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, as, as people fleeing some of the communities, I know you spent a lot of time in Lviv, and now we're hearing some of those stories about that, and, and certain in Kiev as well. The citizens are talking about this, and it it seems to me... That you know the the story that we got out of the Kremlin, of course, was well. We're going in there to get rid of the Nazis in Ukraine, and we thought, well, you know, come on. But it seems as if the the, the soldiers, the military uh, types from from Russia, are buying into that. I don't know what they're being told they're they're supposed to be doing, but random killings and and the the stories that we're hearing about, you know, people being basically assassinated, and and the story that you reported the other day, of course, about you know people that were refugees were trying to get to where you are today in Poland, that they were basically kidnapped by Russian soldiers and said, you know, we're going to rescue you. They sent them to Russia as opposed to go to yeah. Poland right now, took their passports away from them. Uh, and, and they, they, they seem as if they, they, they feel they're on the side of righteousness here by doing things like this. Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know how much of it is propaganda and I don't know how much of it is them just having to cope with what, you know, they've had to do and trying to rationalize it away. That's an impossible call to make of what exactly is going through their mind. But what we're seeing is, you know, obviously that that these Russians believe it. We've seen, uh, you know, what I'm dealing with today is is not the first story of uh, rapes or sexual assaults that have come out of Ukraine. Uh, we've heard stories of uh, a woman who was raped uh, after they shot her husband for being, quote unquote, a Nazi. Um, and this level of violence this distress uh, the russian soldiers are under as well and and this is not to excuse their behavior but to say that they're in a absolutely frenzied state of mind and being given every opportunity to rationalize away their behavior as they take out their aggression on ukrainian civilians is what brings us to this point what brings us out of this point i'm not sure uh if i could figure that out i'd cure human nature unfortunately i can't um but I, I can only imagine it's going to get better before, or I'm sorry, I, I can only imagine it's going to get worse before this uh, this gets better. You've, you've talked to some of the folks that are, now that you're in Poland for a couple of days anyway, who've left Ukraine. Uh, and first of all, I guess there's two parts of the question. What was the trip like from, from where you were to get to Poland right now? I mean, because we hear about people that are, are, are fleeing the terrible things that are happening in Ukraine right now. Were you nervous? Is, is there a concern about your safety while you're even traveling to Poland? You get nerves. Uh, it's, it's kind of impossible not to get nerves as you pull up to, you know, a checkpoint uh, that's been set up in the middle of the street where you have, I mean, these, these were boy soldiers. They were 18 if they were a day um, with, you know, AK-47s hanging off their backs, uh, checking your passports. And 
staring at you intensely and you're wondering, well, are they going to get jumpy? Are they going to, you know, they're going to ask, what am I doing here? It's impossible not to feel the, the kind of tension uh, coming through there. Once you actually get across the border, uh, even at the border, it's a little easier. But going through the country itself, you can really see what people are dealing with. And the people that are coming from the front, uh, of course, they're still dealing with the air raid sirens coming in in, in Lviv Oblast. They're still hearing all the things they heard from the front when the shells would fall. Um, they're seeing the same kind of camouflage and weaponry that they dealt with all the way up there. So if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I can only imagine how those people are, are, are feeling. Once you get across the border, uh, you can see it. And we, we spent uh, uh, several hours in a, in a refugee uh, processing center, a humanitarian center. And uh, you can see it on the people's faces that were in there. You can see something is missing. Something is gone. Let's talk about hope, because uh, I know you've, you've, you've talked to these people in their mindset. I mean, as you and I are speaking right now, President Zelensky is addressing the UN Security Council by video. Uh, by the way, ironically, of course, the chairman of the Security Council this month is Russia. Uh, I find that rather troubling, and I'm sure the president does as well. Uh, we know what he's going to be asking of them. Um, we know the result of that ask is going to be as well. Are, are, are the citizens of Ukraine giving up hope? Do they just say, hey, the, the world is not going to be there for us? Uh, or do they still have that, that optimism and that rigor that you, you've written about and talked about? I haven't seen that rigor waver. You know, I mentioned that there's something missing now in their in their eyes of the people who come over. But the one thing that's not gone is is that righteous fury. Uh, the anger is still there. If they start talking about Russia or if they start talking about the situation in their hometowns, they are still royally mad. And uh, again, as I've said, you know, over the last few weeks, just animated by that anger. It's, it's changed them. It's impossible to say that, you know, this hasn't changed them. But there's a notion throughout every single Ukrainian uh, that there's not an inch to be given. I'm going to tell you about uh, very quickly a volunteer we met over there, uh, a woman who helped us uh, escort uh, my doe up uh, to Krakow. Uh, she was living in Russia when they took the Crimea back uh, several years ago. And, uh, you know, her anger, even though she hasn't been over there, is just the same as everybody else that, that has been in Ukraine this entire time. She's been in the UK and ended up coming back here to volunteer. And, you uh, you know, for anybody who's Ukrainian, it's it's put them in a situation of whatever I can do, however I can help, whatever aid I can give to my people or however I can contribute, that's what I'm going to do, even if that means getting out and surviving. Matthew, stay well, uh, stay safe. Uh, we appreciate this. We'll be looking forward to your uh, follow-up, of course, uh, with the story that you're following right now in Poland. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon and, and maybe have some better news on this. But I really do appreciate you taking some time for us today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Bill. Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist, uh, who's in Poland right now, and of course heading back to Ukraine and uh, Lviv uh, with his reports. And uh, we wish him and uh, everyone who's over there doing what they can to try to help Safe Harbor uh, to hopefully do what they can do and stay safe themselves. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into Twitter. And so does Elon Musk, apparently. Uh, he is one of Twitter's most followed accounts. And now one of the most vocal critics, but it's looking as if Elon Musk is now going to be one of the largest shareholders of Twitter. Mike Dubusky has the details. Elon Musk now owns 73.5 million shares in Twitter, according to new regulatory filings. That's about a 9.2% stake in the company, Wedbush Securities' Dan Ives. Elon is not someone that just puts a toe in the water. Musk has had a rocky relationship with Twitter, even accusing the platform of undermining democracy last month. Twitter, meanwhile, has lagged behind larger competitors like Facebook in terms of audience and revenue in recent years. Ives says that all means one thing. This is the start of... Some changes at Twitter. Mike Dubusky, ABC News, New York. It's an interesting story uh, because he's been one of their vocal critics. So, so why is he buying into this? I want to bring uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin into the conversation. Jeffrey, of course, is a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and author of a book called Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Nice, nice to be with you, Bill. What's your read on what's going on here? I guess, you know, if, if you want to control the message, I guess buy the, the company that's giving the message. I guess that seems to be the, the, the mindset of Elon Musk in a situation like this. Well, it's really interesting because Musk is uh, obviously a very successful 
uh, owner of Tesla. He's uh, made a lot of money. He has a lot of influence and he clearly wants more, even though <clears throat> I've seen it said or that he's quoted as saying he's not going to get involved editorially with uh, with Twitter. Um, I think we've heard that one before. And I think one of the things that uh, Musk is known for is he is a libertarian. He believes in no restrictions on free speech. And Twitter has been trying with present management to restrict the flow of disinformation that occasionally gets put on Twitter. And some people have been blocked. And my sense is that the new ownership under under Elon Musk will will limit that or at least uh, step away from that idea that Twitter needs to moderate some of the comments that are being posted on that on that platform. So I think we're going to see, despite what uh, what Elon Musk uh, claims he will not get involved with, it'll be hard for him to resist. Well, I mean, you know, who's the most famous user of Twitter besides Elon Musk? Of course, previously, anyway, it would probably be Donald Trump, uh, who basically used that uh, as his platform. He's banned from Twitter for life. If, if an Elon Musk has control over a company like that with that libertarian mindset, does he simply say, yeah, Donald, you want to come back on? Knock yourself out. Let a thousand flowers bloom, as Mao Zedong once said and didn't, didn't follow his own advice. Um, I think what we're going to see on Twitter is a proliferation of ideas and opinions that are pretty, uh, pretty much away from what media critics have considered to be responsible contextual use of the media. I think what's interesting to me is that the biggest advocates for unfettered free speech seem to be conservatives. Uh, and the people who want some kind of moderation and control seem to be the liberal left. Um, so we're seeing yet more of this divisiveness in our society coming onto, into, a, into a very powerful uh, digital platform. Well, and I guess one of the concerns, though, that has consistently been raised here is uh, I'm going to use the phrase disinformation. I'm not going to use the phrase that Trump always used about situations like this. But it, it's troubling to an awful lot of people to know that there are things that are being posted there that are simply not true. Uh, and 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 the harm that that can do, and and the you know the people that can use that to to verify or to ask, in some cases justify uh, their actions uh, is is troubling. So there's been a lot of pressure on social media, and spe specifically Facebook and Twitter, of course. That obviously is something that bothers a guy like Elon Musk. Exactly, and I think what we're going to see is that uh, North America, especially in the U.S with their uh, uh, admiration for free speech as a principle, we're going to see some pushback from the Europeans and from the Australians and maybe eventually from the Canadians as well. There seems to be a regulatory move growing, certainly in Europe, that um, platforms such as Twitter and Facebook need to have some kind of uh, restraint. Um, the Americans object to that strongly for uh, historical reasons and political reasons, uh, but the Australians and the Europeans have no such uh, anxiety about those kinds of restrictions. So that if Twitter is, allows for misinformation or disinformation to appear on that platform more than before because the new ownership says, you know, let it all hang out, uh, I think we're going to see the European Union and the Australians and eventually the Canadians saying, no, we're going to regulate it. Which brings us back to the elementary debate point, I guess, Jeffrey. I mean, you know, where do you draw the line in situations like that? You know, one of the biggest pushbacks of Twitter, of course, was after the uh, the, the mass shooting in, the, in a mosque in, in New Zealand some years ago. The, the guy actually posted it was a live uh, post as, as he was doing this. And, and that was up there for some time. Uh, and, and that was basically what said, look, there's got to be some form of, I, I know that, you know, the libertarians would say censorship, but it, control over messaging and what you can post in there. Is Elon Musk looking for this just to be the, the Wild West where you can do what you want, when you want, to whom you want? That's my uh, understanding of how he has approached the media in the past. 
And he shows no signs of letting up on that particular attitude. And he'll have a lot of support, certainly from some people in in the U.S. Congress and and certainly in the Canadian Parliament at at some levels. But I think that we're going to see an interesting uh, pushback against uh, what Twitter is going to be under an Elon Musk ownership. Um, I think it's going to be a very powerful argument about whose opinion is acceptable and whose opinion is not acceptable in terms of public discourse. We're, we're, in, we're again in very much uncharted territory. And I think the Canadian, uh, the, the federal government is seems to be moving towards that side of things that says, no, the new regulation that's coming up uh, by the CRTC is going to find a way to regulate social media in a way that it hasn't done before, because social media has allowed uh, for a lot of very strange opinions, ideas, and simply disinformation to appear on their sites. And and it goes beyond, you know, I know that disinformation is a wide-ranging uh, term. Uh, you know, it, it's it's beyond the uh, the flat earth types. It's it's the stuff that has been posted previously, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, you know, racist, uh, misogynist. I mean, go down the list of those things have been posted. Uh, and the concern has always been raised. That, well, you know, okay, you know that it's racist. The next person may not. It may act upon that and simply say, that's the way things are going to be. And I'm going to do something about it. And the, you know, the, you, you see the mass shootings and things of this nature. So we've put restrictions in. And you and I have talked about this in the past, of course, about, you know, what we can do, for instance, as a broadcaster, what you can do as a journalist and as an author there are some things you just can't print or that i can't say do we impose those same sorts of standards on social media you know because there have been congressional hearings and parliamentary hearings about this about what to do everybody seems concerned well, i shouldn't say everybody i guess there's some people that as you say <laughs> still want to use that as just a, a wild west platform but are we going to be able to do that or is there going to be too much pushback from the elon musks and others i think there's going to be a uh, quite a fight brewing right now. And we're seeing this around what's being reported from Russia about what's going on in Ukraine. There are a lot of, there's a lot of trolling going on, basically trying to justify what Russia is doing in Eastern Europe. And they're getting a lot of support from very conservative, quite right-wing political parties in France, in Germany, in Hungary, basically saying, don't believe everything you see about the heroic Ukrainians. And of course, that is absurd because we're seeing photographs and hearing reports about what's going on there. But there still is a percentage of the public that is prepared to buy into this. So the question then is, am I allowed to sample ideas that others might find objectionable? What if I wanted to look in on some of those comments from Russia? Does that mean that my right to sample different opinions will now be limited? I think in some ways they should be, but in other ways makes me very nervous that someone is telling me what I can and cannot consume in terms of information. Well, and you know, I guess the classic example of that is, is China uh, that basically controls social media in that country. And we just saw examples of that during the the Olympics just a couple of months ago where they basically said, look, at, leave your cell phones at home. Uh, you know, you can use ours uh, because they control what can go on there. They have their own form of Twitter, but it's all government controlled. That's that's the taking it to the extreme to the other side here of, uh, of what uh, a guy like Musk is doing. And he's going to push back on something like that. But what's the result of that then? It's indoctrination. It's controlling the message from government. They can basically, it's, it's, it's you know, telling you what you can think and what you're allowed to say in situations like that. We don't want to go there either. Is there a middle ground here, Jeffrey? I'm not sure there is right now, but there will be one eventually. When I was teaching out at U of T Scarborough, uh, teaching first-year journalism, I had a lot of students who came from mainland China. And then I was told, as uh, three students from China came to my office and said, look, we have to be very careful about what we can talk about because there's someone in your class who is prepared to denounce us to the consul general. I said, what in particular? They said, we are told that if we talk about the three T's, Tiananmen, Tibet, 
and Taiwan that the people who talk about them will be met, will be reported on back to the embassy, back to the consul general. And so we ha- there's there all there's all kinds of pressure. There's pressure online. There's pressure in person. There's pressure from economic interests. We have to figure out as a society and as a journalistic culture what we consider to be effective and respectful and open in a in a in a society that that deserves to be open and respectful. So we're 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 at that point right now where everything's up for grabs. So we have to be very aware of what is on the media, what is in the media, what is being talked about and what is not being talked about. That to me is the most maybe the most important part. And the elementary question here, of course, is, well, who controls that and who sets the standard? Is it government? Is it a, a, a quote-unquote, arm's-length body? Uh, you know, f- where does that responsibility lie? Good question and a tough one to answer. I think that in Canada, we need to find some way to bring government and media organization and educators together to talk about what would be an acceptable level of moderating the comments that appear in the media it's uh, good luck it's, <laughs> good luck Bill. well that's yeah therein lies the problem uh you know because then you get the accusations of censorship and you know which is the antithesis i guess of what musk is looking to do here or i guess if i you know i wanted to be cynical about this is is musk doing what he's doing with twitter right now so he can control the message and he sets the standards I think the second point that you made is probably the most likely one. People who buy into media don't do it necessarily out of some kind of altruism. They do it because they want some kind of control. And I don't think Elon Musk is any different. I'm uh, reading a, a great book uh, right now by Brian Karam, who's a longtime uh, reporter for, down in the States. He's a guest on this show an awful lot. Uh, and uh, it's, it's about journalism in the American press, of course, and the death of journalism, as he calls it, and how we can get it back. But he writes extensively about Roger Ailes, and uh, and I know you're fully aware of him, but Ailes, of course, was the, the brains, as it were, if I could use that expression, with Fox News, uh, and Rupert Murdoch. And, and it essentially, as he says in the book, and I think there's general consensus, you know, they didn't start this network because they wanted to, you know, you know, spread the word of the of the truth. They wanted to control the message, and you know that this was going to be their platform for it. And I'm wondering if Musk is of the same mindset right now. You know, the, I don't like the message that's coming out of there, so I'm going to buy the company and I'll give them my message. Well, exactly, and there's a grand tradition of that in in a lot of media organizations in Britain and in Canada. Uh, the way uh, Lord Beaverbrook, a Canadian went over to to the UK and took over uh, important uh, newspapers because he wanted his message to get out and not the not the newsroom's message so the the maybe we're in the era of the return of the old media barons Jeff Bezos now Elon Musk all of them are there to have influence on what we consume informationally and it seems to me, and this is perhaps best left for another discussion, that the real value in journalism increasingly, and I'm a insidious centralizer in my past, but I think local news and information is going to save us. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on your show, but, but I really believe that uh, the more local expressions of concern and of information that we can have, especially in this country, uh, the better off we'll be. Jeffrey, as always, great to get your input into this. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Bill, always a pleasure. Take care. Jeffrey Devorkin, of course, uh, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. And that trust is something that seems to be in question these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a generational shift going on. Why new music is facing a decline on music streaming services and uh, the old artists, the classic artists, as it were, seem to be enjoying a real surge in popularity. What's going on here and what's causing this? I want to bring uh, Eric Alper into the conversation. Eric, of course, publicist and uh, music commentator and uh, all-around genius when it comes to music and what's good and what's bad. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Eric. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, ev- everything's great. Y- you know what? As soon as you hear Bruce Springsteen, does that not rev up your whole day? Too bad it it's should, me. but yeah. 
by choice. I mean, you know, I, my producer just said, you know, Alicia said, what do you want to hear? And I said, well, Bruce, of course, we're going to talk about this, <laughs> uh, who's, you know, pretty much set for retirement now, having sold his catalog for $500 million. Uh, and it's happening with other people, too. Uh, we, yeah, it's, question- it's Springsteen, it's Aerosmith, Paul Simon did it, Bob Dylan did it, Tina Turner, the Beach Boys sold their catalog and their likeness, even Motley Crue sold it for around 90 to $150 million. So if people love classic rock music, guess what? You're going to hear it for the rest of your life because these um, these investment companies, the venture capitalists, the banks, they're all going to want their investment back as much as possible. So that means more classic rock stations, more talk about NFTs and non-fungible tokens and more potential shows on Broadway like Springsteen on Broadway or Mamma Mia using the music of artists. I mean, this is what it's going to be, which if I'm a new artist, um, this scares me a lot because there's little room as it is for new artists to break through. And when it's the landscape is completely dominated by publishing companies trying to get more Fleetwood Mac out there, you know, more Christine McVie songs from Fleetwood Mac, more Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's just less for for the new artists. But it's always kind of been like that, but we've never really seen it this dominant before. Well, yeah, and we've all heard those stories about people, well, the Springsteens and everyone else, about how tough it is to actually make it in the biz, you know, as a new artist. Uh, But you would think, though, Eric, that, you know, you get into music streaming, uh, and maybe this is just a generational thing. You think, okay, that's fertile ground for for that that those new artists, because the the people that are going to be streaming music are the ones that are going to be interested in 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 those sorts of acts, as opposed to the classic acts that we've just talked about here. And it's not just an age thing. I mean, it, those those younger generation people that are streaming music right now are listening to Springsteen and and the Beatles and Neil Young and and people like that. What what's the I know why I love that stuff, but why is is a a, a Gen X uh, person listening to that as opposed to to, to to the Beebs or somebody else like that who's also streaming? Yeah, it's kind of gone this way for a little bit. You know, back in 2015, that was a really good year for the music industry, but it wasn't really great for music release that year. That was the first time that catalog sales, meaning songs and albums that were at least 18 months old, overtook new music consumption for the first time. In fact, thanks to music streaming services being up over 90% that year, that allowed all of these albums that were currently unavailable at your local record store to be available for the first time for one low price. It was very different when... Um, you know, 60 years worth of music was available on iTunes because you had to pay for each and every one of those songs that you wanted to have. And when music streaming services came along for $10 or $12 or however much you paid, you got access to every single song ever. And I think that when that happened in 2015, you had a real generational shift of people that might have been 6 to 10 years old growing up with access to everything in their house. Disney Plus, Netflix, Apple TV, everything at your fingertips a la carte. Those people are now teenagers, which, you know, once the music industry loses their their once they, they stop focusing on teenagers who have always dominated the music industry, um, that's when the music industry starts to get into real trouble. So those kids grew up thinking Nothing wrong with playing Fleetwood Mac. Nothing wrong playing with the Beatles or the Who or the Stones because that's what their parents were still listening to. So it is a generational shift. But I don't know. I got to be honest with you. My own personal feeling is like in watching the Grammys, the music all kind of sounded a little bit safe to me. It all sounded very consistently one beat, one mood, one structure, one everything. And I know that that's my age. But I remember in the 80s when you had Michael Jackson and Duran Duran and you were also listening to the Beatles and the and Pink Floyd and the Who and Janet Joplin and Tina Turner and all these artists that were exciting and relatively new. Now it just seems like they're making music for 30 seconds on TikTok. Uh, and I think just those numbers are showing it. On Spotify last year, they had 140 songs break a billion streams. On TikTok, that number was 438. So there's a lot of music consumption being based on TikTok, which is primarily a platform for 15 and 30 second videos. 
Exactly. And and it's not as if uh, a lot of the new artists aren't doing well. I mean, you know, Drake is is just doing fine. Thanks very much. Oh, I sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, doing, they're, they're doing their thing. But even as you mentioned, the Grammys on, on Sunday, I mean, you know, the, the Foo Fighters were, were big winners. You figure, wow. And sadly, they couldn't be there, of course, because their, their drummer passed away suddenly. But, you know, after all these years, I mean, Dave Grohl is still in the spotlight here. And it's, it's kind of neat, I think, you know, as you say, because we listen to that stuff. And that, you know, that, that was that's the foundation, the Beatles, the Who, and all these other groups and the Foo Fighters more recently. But it's always surprising when somebody who's 16 or 17 says, yeah, I like that music. That's kind of cool. You figure out what's the attraction to it. But there's, there's something that draws them to those artists, isn't there? Yeah, and, and and you know, every year or so, the media likes to trot out the "is rock dead" argument, and you know, my <laughs> yeah. my answer is always like, look, as long as the Foo Fighters are around, then then no. Um, but I I think I think that sweeping change is everywhere. Um, look, if you're if you're a teenager and you feel alone in the world and you feel like a little bit of a loser and you feel alienated. 30 years ago, you would probably pick up a guitar or a set of drums and just bash it out and find a band and, and join the rebellion against the man or whoever else. And it was the coolest thing in the world to be in a band. That's how you got girls. That's how you got respect. That's how you got attention. Now that there's really not the cover of Rolling Stone anymore, there's no enemy, there's no melody maker, there's no music magazines. Um, what is the, you know, and the Grammys and the Junos and the Oscars and every uh, other award shows are dropping in terms of viewership um, almost 15% year by year. In fact, the Grammys have the second lowest in their history with 8% viewership, which is around, um, you know, it got a four rating, which is around 8 million people, which is about 4% of America watching it, which is really, really low. Um, where do you, so if you don't have those goals and dreams, what are your goals and dreams now? You know, is it to get a million streams on Spotify? Is it a billion streams on 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 TikTok? Because you can't tour thanks to COVID and the lack of venues in the city of Hamilton or or the GTA in general. So are are these kids growing up wanting to be world famous for playing video games really, really well? Or are they still looking to join bands? And as long as there's a Billie Eilish, as long as there's a Taylor Swift, the Foo Fighters um, playing real instruments, I, I think that there'll always be a segment of population that want to play real rock and roll per se. Um, but that number is dropping a lot. And I don't necessarily know where it's going to, except for people that are able to create music in their bedrooms with their computer on equipment that would be tens of thousands of dollars 25 years ago are now hundreds of dollars and easily accessible, which is great. Look, at the end of the day, Bill, you and I both know, as long as people are playing music, that's amazing. I don't care what kind of music they play, but certainly it's worrisome when things don't stick as much as they used to. So will we have another Nirvana? Will we see another Fleetwood Mac? Are we going to have another Taylor Swift? It's really hard to say when we're all so scattered, listening and watching so many different things. Yeah, exactly. What about the music itself, though? Is there a, a, a relatability to that? And, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, yeah, as I listen to some of the old 60s stuff that I still just loved, you know, and you hear songs like this, and it's pretty clear from the lyrics you know whether it's uh, you know Ricky Nelson or it's uh, any of the, the early '60s artists that they they were geared towards teenagers. You know, Young Love, yeah. and Neil Sedaka, stuff like that. Uh, you know, I a Broken Heart. You know, I, I hope you know the girl next door is you know Calendar Girl, that sort of stuff. But is there something inherent in the in the lyrics to those songs that you can, if you're 16, whether it's uh, it's 16 in 1950 or 16 in 2022? that you can relate to those things because like, you know with teenagers of course rebellious teenagers you know there was eddie cochran in summertime blues and the next generation it was my generation by the who yeah uh, and then you get a little older and you're growing up and you got springsteen singing the river and things like that and you figure man that, that's that's my story that's me they're talking about and it, does, does that pull people into the to those sorts of artists yeah, it still holds true for the generation right now and their own music. 
you know, certainly working in the music industry, um, I've had a lot of songs. There was a time from about April 2020 until about maybe December 2021 when it seemed like every single song I was working was a ballad. It was about isolation. It was about being alone. It was really, really depressing because a lot of those artists didn't do much except for record music or just try to struggle both physically and mentally get over the hum because we were all in the same position for COVID and isolation and being locked down and watching our family and our friends get sick and in some cases pass away so we had that collective spirit um the problem became is that that was the only collective spirit that we had when you're a teenager and you take a look back at songs from credence clearwater revival or jefferson airplane and you you hear stuff about the vietnam war or you hear about the the divide that was happening in the 60s it's almost like they're longing for a time that they don't that they weren't a part of hoping somewhat that it exi- it existed then you know we you know you and I have talked on this program a lot about the rising sale of vinyl records and mm. this week five of the 10 biggest albums were from 1960 and 1970 so it's not so much of the music anymore that that makes people want to buy that kind of music but it's the idea that we had a lot of time to spend 45 minutes listening to an album it's a time that just doesn't exist anymore um And I'm not sure that this generation can relate as easily back to that music, but certainly they they have their own relationship with their artists today that are talking about the things that they're talking about. Is this trend, and you've been following music a long, long time. I mean, you see trends come and go, but is this going to have an impact on new music? Are artists uh, that are trying to break out going to say, this is what people are listening to. I want to sound like CCR. I want to sound like Fleetwood Mac, as opposed to trying to develop their own style, their own techniques. No, I, I think that it, it that it's okay to to somewhat be a seventeen year old. A wannabe pop singer in your bedroom saying, I love Fleetwood Mac, I love Pink Floyd, I love the Beatles, I'm going to do that, and you can't do that. I mean, the only people that has really been able to do that pretty successfully might have been Silk Sonic, who won four Grammys this weekend. They're the dynamic duo made up of Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. Bruno Mars, you know, has always done throwback music to the 70s he you know for a time he wanted to be Marvin Gaye now he wants to be James Brown and now he wants to be Elvis you know he wants to do all of those things I think that that's okay as long as you make it new but I think to take what the Beatles were able to do I mean there's no better teacher than the Beatles really I mean whenever artists get stuck writing songs and I and I get word of it it's kind of like just go listen to the Beatles because it's all there for you how to start a song how to finish a song so it's going to be interesting to see but I think you know, real instruments, you're not really going to hear them a lot on today's radio, that's for sure. Yeah, well, with, that's computer technology. That's the way things yeah. are going to be. Uh, but it's always want to be. And you're right, there's always going to be influencers. Um, you know, and depending on how far back you want to go, I mean, you know, whether it's Lennon and McCartney or Simon and Garfunkel or, you know, they all, that just, we all know that they were all influenced by the Everly Brothers. I mean, the harmonies yeah, that those guys put Yeah, but all out. of that uh, is so bizarre because in listening to you talk, it's so strange that we're talking about music from 50 years ago that are still selling millions of copies around the world. That would be like you and I in the 1980s listening to Michael Jackson and then rediscovering music from the 1930s saying flappers is where it's at, man. And tens of millions of people all of a sudden dressing up like it was the 19, like the roaring 20s all over again, which there was a small segment of population that did, but consistently dressing up and and dancing to like old swing time jazz it's bizarre that we're still living at a time when we're still talking about this stuff and i love it but like going back to the beginning this is why catalog music is continuing to sell because there's just no time stamp on any of that music from 30 40 50 years ago and i guess the thing that always blows my mind about this stuff okay is as we were listening to it when it was the new music in, in those yeah, days. Yeah, right. You helped make Did it. Did we ever think that we'd be talking about this? I mean, I'm listening to a couple of tunes the other day, and I figure that was that's 50 years ago. My God, you know, <laughs> and and it and it's still popular, and maybe even more popular in some in some realms. Yeah, the best music is always the one that that you grew up listening to. You know, whenever people talk about that Drake isn't going to be around or The Weeknd isn't going to be around or Justin Bieber, yeah, they absolutely will. You know, people. 
um, people in their 20s and 30s are going to get married to Drake songs. They're going to get married to love songs by Justin Bieber because that's the music that means the most to them. It's not going to be something that they just happen to hear on the radio a lot. It's going to be something that they help create that star like I was with Duran Duran or tears for fears like that music is in my dna and will never will never leave me but you know the 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 teenagers now that are listening to ariana grande they're listening to Lil nas x they're going to be listening to that for 40 or 50 years and our kids your kids or your grandkids and my kids and grandkids we are going to be on the radio in the year 2040 talking about drake selling his catalog for three and a half billion dollars and we're not even going to bat an eyelash well, and as you know, with your expertise in marketing, uh, the, the smart people now are going to tap into this and understand that. And I guess maybe the best example of that are the TV commercials we've been watching for the last couple of years about uh, the food delivery services. Little Nas is there, but so is Elton John. I mean, they, you know, they yeah. paired those up. They're going to catch both generations there, aren't they? Yeah, um, especially when they're going to have to start to diversify those kinds of things where, yes, Elton John doesn't need any more money. I, I get it. But he also doesn't want to leave money on the table either. And when music streaming services are giving artists 0.0004 cents per stream, so if you're streaming a million times on Spotify, that's the equivalent of about $4,000 that you're getting as a rights holder that might be divided up by eight or nine different other co-writers and producers and record labels and so forth. That's not a lot of money to be had. That's why you're seeing a lot of autobiographies being written by these artists, a lot of commercials, a lot of shows that um, are being executive produced by artists in order to use their music. They need to get their music in front of people. They need to get their name in front of people. More importantly, like Lil Nas and Elton John, they need to both use each other to build their brand with Elton John having one foot in the present of look how relevant I am hanging out with Lil Nas X and Lil Nas X saying I'm crossing generations by hanging out and doing commercial with Elton John. Well, exactly. I mean, how many people that watch that and said, oh, that's Elton John. I love Elton John. Who's that other guy? You Google Who's the other guy? Right. You're exposed and to, then, to that artist. And, yeah, and they're teenagers who are looking at that going, who's the old guy with Lil Nas X? I remember when, <laughs> when Paul McCartney and Rihanna and Kanye West did a song called Seven Seconds, and they and they, they launched it at the Grammys, and the trending topic that night was Paul McCartney, only because people were tweeting, and without any hint of irony, great look for Kanye West to bring Paul McCartney back to life. And it was like, <laughs> what? And so, you know, like, who's the old guy that used to be in the Beatles? You know, it's like that. You want to feel old? Just go on Twitter for about 10 minutes. Exactly. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Bill. We'll talk soon. Take care now. Eric Alper, publicist and uh, music commentator, of course. And uh, always enjoy those conversations. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.